This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Dylan Penningroth. I'm a professor of law and history, and I'm chair of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures Committee. Uh, these lectures were established in 1944 through a bequest from Elizabeth Bonestell and her husband, Cutler L. Bonestell of San Francisco. Now, the Bonestells cared very deeply for history, and they hoped that the lectures would encourage students, faculty, scholars, and area residents to study the legacy of Thomas Jefferson and to explore values inherent in American democracy. Past lecturers, including Professor Annette Gordon-Reed, Senator Alan Simpson, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Walter, Walter Lefebvre, and Archibald Cox, delivered Jefferson Memorial Lectures on early American history, about Jefferson himself, and on American institutions and policies in politics, economics, education, and law. Now, any event like this is a group effort. And the committee, which is composed of Mark Brilliant, Paul Pearson, Wendy Silver, Karen Tani, Christopher Tomlins, and I, joins me in thanking Ellen Gobbler, who you've seen up here a minute ago, for her deft and tactful handling of all the logistics. It is a big job. Now, we're pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present this year's speaker in the Jefferson Memorial Lecture Series, George Packer. Now, before I let him up on stage, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have read The New Yorker? That's an easy question. Uh, how many of you have started reading a New Yorker article and forgot what you were doing a minute ago? Uh, how many of you uh, realized a half hour later that you still have a lecture to write for tomorrow morning? How many of you realized half an hour later that you forgot to pick up the kids? Uh, I'm not going to say whether I did that. I'm sure you can relate when I tell you that I have lost many an hour to that magazine. And the absolute worst, the worst, were the articles by George Packer. (laughs) Curse you, George Packer. What makes him so good? One reviewer of his latest book, The Unwinding, quoted one of his characters as believing that, quote, there were two kinds of journalists, the ones who told stories and the ones who uncovered wrongdoing. Mr. Packer is both, the reviewer said, and he has written something close to a nonfiction masterpiece. I would put it this way. Packer has a rare gift for evoking something of the spirit of an era in the story of a life, a town, or a family. He puts that gift to work on big questions, like what has the lure of unregulated capitalism done to America's democratic values. His writing has kaleidoscopic sweep, yet is ruthlessly precise. And he does it all day long. Not only is he a staff writer for The New Yorker, he writes regularly for The New York Times Magazine, Dissent, Mother Jones, and Harper's. In his spare time, he wrote two novels, an award-winning play, Betrayed, and five nonfiction books. One of those books, The Assassin's Gate, America and Iraq, won the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Book Award and an overseas 
Book Award. His most recent book, The Unwinding, won the National Book Award for nonfiction. He is currently working on a book about Richard Holbrook and the end of the American century. And for his Jefferson lecture, he turns from recent history, I think, to our present moment in a talk entitled American Identity in the Age of Trump. Please join me in welcoming George Packer to Berkeley. So nice. Thank you. Oh, man. Dylan, thank you so much for that. Um, I can't wait to talk about your work after, uh, after this is all over. Uh, enough about me. Um, and thank you, Ellen, for all that you did to, to bring me here and to the committee that brought me. It's an incredible honor to be asked to give this lecture and hearing the my predecessors uh, makes my, you know, my spine go a little bit cold. Um, I'm going to do my best. Uh, I will talk a bit about recent history uh, because you can't talk about the age of Trump without going back a bit. But first, I want to say it's great to be back in the Bay Area, which is where I grew up. It's also weird to be at Cal during big game week because I grew up at Stanford when... <laughs> You were the enemy. So almost 10 years ago, I set out to write a book about what happened to America over the generation that coincided with my adult life. That was a large subject, and large subjects are best approached through small dramas. I wanted to create a portrait of the country through the, uh, the stories of a handful of Americans. It was the depths of the Great Recession. I began traveling around the country, sometimes as a New Yorker magazine writer, more often on my own dime, mainly to out-of-the-way places that the media tend to overlook, the tobacco and textile region of the North Carolina Piedmont, the decayed industrial city of Youngstown, Ohio, the new subdivisions around Tampa Bay, which almost overnight had become ghost subdivisions. I met people in these places who became what writers call characters, meaning the subjects of stories. They weren't famous. They thought of themselves as so ordinary that some of them couldn't understand why I was interested. But they let me spend months following them, asking them impertinent questions, getting to know them in a deeper way than a single interview would have allowed. I liked listening to them. I liked them, and they knew how to hold my attention. Plus, they were willing to put up with me. Their stories allowed me to get at my bigger theme, the decline of America's democratic institutions. In a way, it's always satisfying to have one's preconceived ideas upended. While I was doing my reporting, I kept meeting Americans who didn't match the familiar red-blue scheme. They might be white southern country people, but they hated corporations and big box stores as well as the federal government. There was the lawyer who kept imagining, almost welcoming an apocalyptic vision of armed citizens turning to political violence. There was the black community organizer who talked down the mentality of victimhood. And there was the ex-lobbyist who wanted to punish Wall Street executives with sweeping legal reforms and jail sentences. They followed the Tea Party, but sounded a little like Occupy Wall Street, or vice versa. They were loose molecules attached to no party hierarchy, 
more individualistic than Democrats, more anti-business than Republicans. Now, the left-right division wasn't wrong. There was no centrist silent majority waiting to elect Michael Bloomberg president. Americans, aided by cable news and social media, have sorted themselves geographically and mentally into mutually hostile and incomprehensible worlds. By some measures, political polarization is wider and fiercer than at any time since the run-up to the Civil War, and political scientists have taken to estimating the chances of a second one breaking out. Some of them give it about 30%. If you graph this polarization using data like voting patterns in Congress, it tracks quite closely with two other major phenomena of the past 40 years, rising levels of inequality and rising levels of immigration. These trends start to increase in the mid to late 70s and continue right up to the present. It's an important task to figure out what the trend lines have to do with one another. Why was post-war America with a broad middle class, wider distribution of wealth, stronger institutions, more ethnic homogeneity, and higher levels of political participation, less polarized than America today? The simple answer, I think, is that a smaller pie divided into less and less equal slices among people who look less and less alike, drives them toward cynical and hateful extremes. My point for now is that the red-blue map could be redrawn in a new way that would explain the political landscape differently and perhaps more accurately, up, down. From this point of view, the affluent on each side of the partisan divide have more in common with one another than they do with the voters below them. A network systems administrator, an oil and gas company vice president, a journalist, and a dermatologist hire nannies from the same countries, dine out at the same Thai restaurants, travel abroad on the same frequent flyer miles, and invest in the same emerging markets index funds. They might have different political views, but they share a common interest in the existing global order and its survival. For those in the lower half or two-thirds, globalization doesn't have much of an upside. It might lower prices at Walmart, but it will give their job to a robot or a foreigner or eliminate it altogether. The Americans I met in these ranks were unorganized, unheard, unspoken for, and they were sinking alone. They were part of a trend toward geographic and social immobility in towns and rural areas. Isolation was a common condition. Among all the people I wrote about, the only one with a network of relations that could provide help when she needed it was an Indian immigrant in Tampa who managed to save her motel from bank foreclosure thanks to her extended family in Florida, England, and Gujarat. The native-born Americans were pretty much on their own. Another family in Tampa, the Hartzels, who were white, had no support of any kind from friends or family or institutions. They were always on the edge of homelessness, and in fact, eventually, they were living with their two children in their broken-down car in a Walmart parking lot. Since most of the stores in their neighborhood were owned by Asians and Latinos, the Hartzels clung to the belief that immigrants received seven years of government benefits after arriving in America, an unfair advantage, they thought. 
Danny Hartzell was trapped by the uncertainty of part-time work in a Target stockroom with a schedule that changed from day to day at the company's convenience and sometimes reduced his weekly hours to the vanishing point. In Studs Terkel's oral history, Working, written in the early 70s, people were trapped in monotonous jobs they hated that turned them into numbers and cogs. Today, that looks like enviable security. The people I wrote about believed that the middle class was gone, that the game was rigged for the powerful and connected, and that their children were screwed. They saw money going to the top or out of the country or to the undeserving down below. There was a pervasive fear of scams and a longing for simple explanations. And these feelings can easily turn to anxiety, nostalgia, and an impulse to blame the other black Americans, coastal urban elites, Muslims, immigrants. The institutions of a middle-class democracy, government, business, media, university, bank, union, church, civic group, were remote and seemed geared for the benefit of those who ran them. And no institution has been guiltier of this abandonment than the two political parties. Over the course of the 20th century, and I'm really going to oversimplify here, the Democrats were the party of the fair shake, the Republicans the party of getting ahead. They represented, respectively, the interests of workers and business. And this continued all the way into the late 60s. And then two big changes happened. On the Democratic side, after the 68 convention, reforms shrank the power of unions and urban machines and increased the power of what was then called the new politics, which was more concerned with the rights of disenfranchised groups and issues like the environment, militarism, and government corruption. Then came the Atari Democrats. I think they're the subject of a book that someone who invited me here is writing. And... That led to Bill Clinton and the 90s, when the party embraced globalization as the way of the future and education as the key to personal and national success. In 2000, at a White House conference on the new economy, Clinton said that the Internet would be the greatest engine for reducing poverty in the history of the world. Things didn't quite turn out like that. And on the Republican side, there was also an immense change in the 70s. Beginning then and, 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 and proceeding in the years since, it's had an increasingly shaky marriage between the interests of the rich and downscale whites, many of them evangelical Christians. From being the boring party of Babbitt, and conservative order, Republicans were seized with a new populist energy. Beginning with the Civil Rights Act of 64, surging with the Reagan Democrats of the 80s and culminating in the most recent election, the Republican Party became a kind of workers' party, but only white workers, and led, strangely enough, by the Koch brothers. For a long time, it seemed like a winning coalition with a powerful ideology, but it was stained by a nihilism that came from the top and sludged downward to the grassroots. It fed on rage and the spectacle of celebrity pop culture. Media demagogues like Limbaugh, Drudge, Breitbart, Coulter, Hannity 
came on the scene with all the viciousness of the 30s radio broadcasts of Father Coughlin. Republican office holders found the will to deploy every available weapon, investigation, impeachment, Supreme Court, filibuster, government shutdown, conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and even implied threats of violence to secure power and destroy their political enemies. So the most important political development of my adult life has been this descending nihilism of the right. In the fall of 2008, I was reporting on the election in a little town called Gloucester, Ohio. I sat down with a group of women who were excited by politics for the first time in their lives. The reason was named Sarah Palin. She'd fit right in with us, they said. Something new had happened in Republican politics. Populism had taken over. Being a Wasilla Walmart mom had become a qualification for high office. For some, the main qualification. Palin's campaign appearances turned working-class whiteness into identity politics. She strutted on stage to the beat of Gretchen Wilson's redneck woman. She even had a pregnant, unwed teenage daughter. In her proud ignorance her contempt for institutions, her infatuation with her own celebrity, and her unrestrained narcissism. Palin was John the Baptist for Donald Trump. I didn't mean for that to be an applause line. What happened to our institutions? In brief, they stopped meeting the aspirations of those at the bottom, while those at the top stopped believing in interests larger than their own. We can't live without elites, for better or worse, but elites with no sense of responsibility are the worst-case scenario. They didn't used to be better people. Human nature doesn't change. But they were held in check by certain taboos and social constraints. Today, our elites and the institutions they lead have largely been replaced by celebrities. Celebrities dominate ordinary people's lives, like household gods, In times of widespread opportunity, the distance between these gods and ordinary mortals closes. The monuments shrink closer to human size, and the lives of America's celebrities are gossipy diversions. But they loom larger in times like now, when inequality is high, trust in institutions is low, and the normal paths of upward mobility are blocked. Extreme celebrity worship speaks of a weakening of ordinary people's faith in self-government. It's a symptom of democratic decay. Our celebrities all live by the hacker's code, ask forgiveness, not permission. They obliterate old distinctions between high and low culture, profit-making and philanthropy, business and politics, leading to the phenomenon of being famous for being famous. The inevitable next step is for Kim Kardashian to sit on the board of a tech startup, host a global poverty awareness event, and write a book on popular neuroscience. (laughs) Or for Donald Trump to be elected president. (laughs) Given the landscape I've described, it should not have come as a complete surprise when millions of Americans were suddenly drawn to a crass strongman who tossed out fraudulent promises and gave institutions and elites the middle finger. My book certainly didn't predict Trump, but it described the early warning signs of something like Trumpism. The fact that so many informed, 
sophisticated Americans not only failed to see him coming, but kept writing him off throughout the campaign and, in a sense, still regard him as a ludicrous aberration, is itself a sign of a democracy in which no center holds. Most of his critics are too reasonable to fathom his kind of politics. Some don't know a single Trump supporter, but to fight Trump, you have to understand his appeal. During the campaign, I interviewed a steelworker outside Canton, Ohio. He was on a picket line as a result of a lockout, facing months without a paycheck, possibly the loss of his job, and he talked about the end of the middle class, which had become a familiar subject to me. He struck me as a decent, thoughtful man, but he found Trump's endless insults refreshing, even exhilarating. The ugliness was a kind of revenge, he said. It's a mirror of the way they see us. He didn't specify who they and us were, but maybe he didn't have to. Maybe he included me among the they. Maybe he believed, he was far too polite to say it, that people like me didn't give a shit about people like him. Maybe he didn't care that Trump's friend and advisor, Carl Icahn, was responsible for the loss of hundreds of factory jobs in Canton, resulting from leveraged buyouts. What mattered was that Trump spoke for him. I am your voice, Trump declared at the Republican convention. Democrats scoffed, but it was powerful stuff. The lower Trump's language and behavior sank, and the more he was vilified by the media and other elites, the more he was celebrated by his tribe. Trump is the leader, and the leader can do no wrong. During the election, we learned that lots of Republican voters are not constitutional originalists, members of the Federalist Society, or devout readers of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. They actually want government to do more things that benefit them, as opposed to benefiting people they see as undeserving. Party leaders should have anticipated Trump's rise. After all, he was created in their laboratory of populism before he broke free and began to smash everything in sight. Trump showed that the Republican Party hasn't been truly conservative or truly Christian for many years. Its most energized elements are not trying to restore stability or institute virtue. They're driven by a sense of violent opposition against changes in color and culture that appear to be sweeping away the country they once knew, against globalization, which turns out to be a political program as revolutionary and threatening as the politics of the Jacobins and the anarchists once were. None of this happened in isolation. The populist impulse that brought Trump to power has taken hold throughout Europe and the rest of the democratic world, from Spain and Britain to Sweden and Poland, from Germany's Alternative für Deutschland to India's BJP, from Hungary's Orban to Turkey's Erdogan. This global reaction against globalism is described in the work of the Harvard political scientist Yasha Monk. He writes that the failure of democracies over the past generation to provide rising living standards, along with mass immigration and the advent of weaponized social media, have split apart what seemed like an inseparable idea, liberal democracy, into two kinds of polity, both of them harmful to the values of self-government on one hand, undemocratic liberalism, such as the European Union and international trade agreements, which protect individual rights but are unresponsive to the popular will, 
And on the other hand, illiberal democracy, such as the governments of Hungary and Turkey, where the people vote for leaders who trample the rights of individuals and minorities, marginalize free media and free speech and opposition parties, and ultimately become autocrats. People in Europe and elsewhere have a history with this kind of politics. At its most virulent in the 20s and 30s, it took the form of fascism. But in spite of Joe McCarthy and the plot against America and it can't happen here, we Americans really don't know it very well. Democracy has always been our creed, and even the two times when it came under existential threat during the Civil War and the Great Depression, we continued to hold elections with the usual political parties, and we amended rather than discarded our Constitution. No one ever got very far in American politics by trashing democracy until now. No one cause explains the 2016 election. It was too monumental for that. It was about many things. It was about race. After eight years under a black president, Trump won in every category of white voters, regardless of income, education, age, or sex. It was about immigrants. They were Trump's favorite target. He didn't do well in places that have a long experience of immigration. He did best among white Americans in places that are experiencing non-white immigration for the first time. He did terribly in Los Angeles and in Queens, but he crushed it in northwestern Iowa. 2016 was about gender. The level of sheer hatred directed at Clinton continues to defy all explanations of personality and emails. The election was about the vast urban-rural divide, and it was about economic anxiety. Not necessarily economic hardship. Trump's supporters had a slightly higher average income than those who viewed him unfavorably, but they had low levels of education, of social capital and mobility, and of hope. They saw their communities going down and their children and neighbors struggling, and they didn't believe that the political elites would or even wanted to do anything about it. A great deal of effort and argument has gone into weighing and measuring these different factors like a contest to declare the winner. I'm not even going to try. I'd only say they tend to go together and they reinforce one another. Eight and a half million Americans who voted for President Obama in 2012 voted for Trump in 2016. He beat Clinton because he did better than Romney and she did worse than Obama in key counties of the upper Midwest, North Carolina, and Florida. The voters who swung from Obama to Trump were whites without a college degree. Altogether, the election was about alienation. This alienation goes beyond whether you're for or against Obamacare. It actually has very little to do with policy. I interviewed Hillary Clinton a month before the election, and she laid out numerous ideas for making the economy more fair and bringing back manufacturing jobs and forcing corporations to be more responsible and breaking up monopolies. As Clinton spoke, I remember thinking two things. First, why haven't I heard more about this? And second, None of it will matter on election day. It's not going to get through. The wind is blowing too hard and wild. She's an incrementalist and an institutionalist in a hostile climate. In 1945, George Orwell described nationalism 
as, quote, the habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or other unit, placing it beyond good and evil, and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests. Nationalism is inseparable from the desire for power. The abiding purpose of every nationalist is to secure more power and more prestige, not for himself, but for the nation or other unit in which he's chosen to sink his individuality, unquote. Orwell called nationalism the strongest force in the world, stronger than religion or socialism or one-worldism, and it still is. Today, American nationalism has come to resemble the ethno-nationalisms on the rise in Europe and around the world. We still don't know the extent and effectiveness of Russian meddling in the campaign, but one thing is already clear. The Russians knew us better than we knew ourselves. They understood how divided and cynical we'd become, what easy prey to fake news stories and ginned-up outrages, what shallow playthings of Twitter and Facebook. The Russians understood how the tech giants, lulled by their own success and narcissism into believing they were unique forces for good, that an open and connected world was the best of all possible worlds, how easily these companies could be used against our democracy. The targeting was clever and precise. Russian saboteurs and their online American collaborators knew exactly how to freak out white Christians in the small towns outside Detroit by inventing a strident local campaign against Islamophobia. By the way, the same thing happened just last month in the Catalonian independence referendum. Some of the divisions in Catalonia were fueled by Russian-inspired fake news. It turns out every society is fragile. Every society can be torn apart by forces nihilistic enough to try. The Russians understood there was nothing very exceptional about Americans after all. We were becoming more and more like Europeans, and the weapons of information war that were already succeeding in Ukraine and Hungary and France could also be used in Arizona and Wisconsin. The Russians somehow intuited that our attachment to democracy had grown dangerously weak. Trump has driven some of this, but all the trends predated him. According to Yasha Monk, Americans born in the 1980s are twice as likely to consider democracy a bad form of government as those born in the 30s. Less than a third of millennials consider it essential to live in a democracy. And all age groups today are more in favor of rule by a strong man than they were 20 years ago. And our attachment to liberal values is weakening along with our belief in democracy. Other research shows that many Americans are ready to get rid of various freedoms. Three quarters don't think that fake news should be protected by the First Amendment. Almost half of Republicans think the government should be able to revoke a broadcast license if it says a story is false. Forty percent of millennials believe that the government should ban statements that are offensive to minority groups. Half of Democrats think government should pass a law requiring Americans to use the preferred pronoun of transgender people. And more than half of Republicans believe that burning the flag should cost you your citizenship. Forty percent of all Americans don't think that religious freedom should apply to all religious groups. It just depends on which tribe you belong to. Now, I don't want to sound sentimental, but all of this makes me sadder than I can express to you. 
the essence of American politics today is tribalism. By that I mean something close to Orwell's nationalism. Fierce attachment to one's group, a constant sense of embattlement and us against them in the struggle for power, a susceptibility to confusing truth with lies, merging ends with means, a readiness to submerge individual judgments and deviations to the interests of the group, a contagion of mob thinking that's greatly strengthened by social media, and a longing for a leader who has simple answers for the aspirations and resentments of the group. So by tribalism, what I really mean is the opposite of liberal democracy. Richard Rorty, the philosopher, foresaw much of this back in the late 90s in his book, Achieving Our Country, whose title comes from a line by James Baldwin. Rorty described the growing gap between the educated elite and the old working class. And then he wrote, at that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for, someone willing to assure them that once he's elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bond salesmen, and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. One thing that's very likely to happen is that the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans and by homosexuals will be wiped out. Jocular contempt for women will come back into fashion. All the resentment which badly educated Americans feel about having their manners dictated to them by college graduates will find an outlet. That was in the late 90s. After the election, this passage enjoyed a brief fame for being posthumously prophetic. Now, in the same slim volume, Rorty also wrote this. Nations rely on artists and intellectuals to create images of and to tell stories about the national past. Competition for political leadership is in part a competition between different stories about a nation's self-identity and between differing symbols of its greatness. So the stories we tell about the past create an idea of who we are as a nation. There's never been a single idea of what that means. Politics is a contest of narratives. The traditional old party divide between the fair shake and getting ahead has broken up. Today, instead, I see four dominant narratives. For one reason or other, none of them gives us what we need. They all keep us in the hole we're in. They all turn away from the heart of liberal democracy. The first narrative of American identity is libertarian America. It imagines a nation of individuals responsible for their own fates. Its key texts are the Federalist Papers and the works of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. Its watchword is freedom. Its ultimate aim is the nation without the state. This was the idea behind the Reagan Revolution, and in his words, it had the power of uplift and transformed the political landscape, replacing what I call the Roosevelt Republic with a vision of limitless opportunity and creating a new political majority. Like all of the narratives I'm describing, libertarian America has some validity to its critique. In the 70s, government seemed to fail at almost everything it tried. The growth of the regulatory state gave unelected bureaucrats great power in people's lives in ways that could be stifling. It's a version of what Yasha Monk calls undemocratic 
liberalism. In his libertarian tract, By the People, Charles Murray reports that the number of pages in the Code of Federal Regulations grew from 22,877 in 1960 to 174,545 in 2012. That's the kind of thing a progressive wouldn't even think to keep track of. In Murray's narrative, everything started to go off the rails in 1937, when the Supreme Court for the first time upheld parts of the New Deal. According to Murray, just about everything the federal government has done since then is unconstitutional. His golden age was the presidency of Grover Cleveland. In the past few decades, libertarian America turned into the ideology of the Republican Party, a dogma of market fundamentalism that transferred wealth and power to corporations and to a tiny slice of individuals at the top who are well-organized and willing to pay for political influence. The libertarian narrative has little to say about economic inequality or the effects of technology and globalization on ordinary people who don't benefit from them. In its extreme form, it's adopted a destructive attitude toward the normal functions of government, a willingness to see the whole structure collapse on the single-minded path to gaining power, which has become an end in itself. This extremism has found its way into the center of power in Washington. In American history, beginning with the founding of the Republic, the settling of the West, the end of slavery, the taming of industrialism, the struggle against economic collapse, fascism, and communism, the national transportation system, the fight for equal rights, the space program, environmentalism, even the digital revolution, all of these national projects depended on the existence of a strong central government, visionary leaders, active citizens. But the libertarian idea regards Americans as consumers, entrepreneurs, taxpayers, everything except citizens. It has no vision of self-government as the answer to people's actual needs. This is why Paul Ryan is willing to let Donald Trump trash our democracy for the sake of tax cuts for rich investors. Since the election, libertarian America remains politically alive as a class of Republican politicians and donors and think tankers who continue to function in Washington with no real connection to the party's voting base. It's a head without a body. The second narrative I want to talk about is cosmopolitan America. This is Silicon Valley's America, in which you have to be a lifelong learner and work for the startup of you. And the transnational flow of goods and capital, information and people benefits everyone. I imagine many people in this room are citizens of cosmopolitan America. It's the home without a home of educated professionals who more than any other group are at ease in the world that modernity has made. For many of us, in the last decade or two, the surface of life has gotten a lot more pleasant and interesting. Think of HBO, Lipitor, FedEx, E-Trade, Mileage Plus Platinum, <laughs> organic grass-fed beef, cold-brewed coffee, and Amazon Prime. Cosmopolitan America comes with a breezy ideology of flattening hierarchies, disrupting systems, discarding old elites. You find this strain of thought in all the important sectors, politics, business, finance, tech, even culture. Think of the writer and the reader in the age of Amazon's self-publishing platform with Jeff Bezos promising the end of all gatekeepers. 
Think of the professional reporter in the age of the citizen journalist on Twitter and Reddit. But across sectors, the result is always the same. When you tear down old structures, wealth and power become concentrated in the hands of fewer people. In a way, cosmopolitan America is the progressive counterpart to libertarian America. Cosmopolitan Americans are right to say that those old jobs aren't coming back, that a college degree is the key to success, that it's better to be open and tolerant than narrow and parochial. But in its optimism about technology and the future, it has missed something important. In 2004, the political scientist Samuel Huntington published his last book, Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity. It was a very troubling book because it presented American democracy as a product of European, specifically Anglo-Protestant culture. Like warnings 100 years ago about Southern and Eastern European immigration, it argued that certain immigrants, especially Latin American Catholics, are not natural fits for America's identity. The argument had an undeniable streak of racism. Huntington expressed anxiety about the weakening of national bonds in contemporary America. He wanted a country of patriots who shared the same culture and loved their country and were willing to fight for it. In my own magazine, Huntington was roundly mocked by our reviewer, who wrote, If the world is becoming more porous, more transnational, more tuned to the same economic, social, and informational frequency, if the globe is more global, which means more Americanized, then the need for national cultural homogeneity is lesser, not greater. The stronger societies will be the more cosmopolitan ones. A decade later, how do things look? Whatever you think of Huntington, he had a clearer view of the forces shaping the near future than his critic. The passage is like a time capsule from a period when progressives thought that globalization was making national identities obsolete. The blind spot of cosmopolitan Americans is that they always underestimate ordinary people's attachment to their country because they've lost it in themselves. As a result, they often fail to foresee the direction politics is likely to take. Nationalism can be turned to positive or negative uses, but it's a force that never completely disappears. In the last few years, we should have at least learned that. The third narrative of national identity is diverse America. It sees Americans as members of groups whose status is determined by the story of oppression, past and present. During the later Obama years, it came as a necessary corrective to the naive illusion that equal rights for all was a settled matter in this country. As a struggle to give all Americans a place at the table based on human rights and universal values, the narrative of diverse America is a force for immense good. But in our moment, it's becoming a dogma among cultural elites, one that dominates media, schools and universities, foundations and the arts. It's become an end in itself. But even the just cause of inclusion is a dead end if we can't answer, included in what? What is the vision of national identity that is the sum of all these parts? The narrative of diverse America is fostered in schools from a young age. I see it in my son's public elementary school education in New York, where he's learning about all sorts of cultures, from African and Chinese to Mayan and Native American, but hasn't been taught the origin story of his own American republic. He knows something about it from listening to Hamilton. 
my kids are obsessed with Hamilton. They could tell you all about the fight over the establishment of a national bank. Hamilton's greatness is not just its music and language, but its vision of inclusion that affirms a common American identity of its characters, its performers, and its audiences. But Hamilton is not a replacement for civics class, which no longer exists. Diverse America has replaced it with an education that celebrates difference without teaching the concepts and the history, good and bad, achievement and failure that underlie the struggle for equality. King demanded that America live out the true meaning of its creed. The most powerful voices today claim that the creed itself is foul. The very notion of American identity is taken to be a coercive whitewash. The narrative of diverse America gets codified in universities, particularly elite ones, where students receive their first and most decisive instruction from diversity officers. On many campuses, this is the true and only core curriculum. I understand the value, but I also understand the side effects. It can become a weapon against the open exchange of ideas and even speech, which Brown University now defines as speech that makes all groups feel included. The focus lately has been on controversial, sometimes hateful speech, efforts on campus to shut it down. You know this better than I do. But I'm actually less concerned by the tired ritual of attention-seeking charlatans and the crowds that confront them than I am by the subtle daily intellectual chill in college classrooms, the fear that keeps students of goodwill from participating in discussions that could land them on social media or in the campus paper. This chill is real enough that my professor friends will talk about it only if I assure them that they're off the record. And it's all unfair to students. The products of the educations are less able or less willing to think in terms larger than their own group. It's a kind of intellectual narcissism, which means they can't find common ground or effective arguments that can reach people of different backgrounds and views. Instead, they're taught to explore and affirm the contours of their own group. Here's a recent story from Diverse America. Kirkus is a famously stingy old book review with a lot of influence. Like Publishers Weekly, it reviews books anonymously before they're published. A month ago, Kirkus reviewed a new young adult novel called American Heart, a dystopia about a near-future America with Muslim registries and internment camps. The narrator, a white teenage girl in the Midwest, slowly discovers the horror of this system and helps an Iranian immigrant woman flee to Canada. The author submitted her novel to Muslim friends for multiple sensitivity reads. And then Kirkus added another level of sensitivity screening with a new rule of assigning its reviews. Quote, because there's no substitute for lived experience, as much as possible, books with diverse subject matter and protagonists are assigned to, quote, own voices reviewers to identify both those books that resonate most with cultural insiders and those books that fall short, unquote. By this rule, cultural outsider Saul Bellow would be prohibited from raving about diverse novelist Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Cultural outsider Zadie Smith would have to be called out for writing On Beauty as an homage to cultural insider E.M. Forster. But in keeping with its rule, Kirkus assigned American Heart to an observant Muslim woman of color. But somehow all these layers of screening did not prevent a political mistake from slipping into the final product, because the reviewer loved American Heart, and she gave it a rare starred review. 
Almost immediately, one of the many mobs on social media, the subgroup of hypervigilant young adult fiction police, yes, it exists, denounced the book and the review for failing to see that a white writer had no business portraying a non-white Muslim character through the eyes of a white protagonist. It was the Huckleberry Finn mistake. Kirkus caved in and withdrew its starred review and compelled the reviewer to reconsider her praise. The editor-in-chief, Claiborne Smith, posted a statement in place of the withdrawn review, quote, We've removed the starred review from Kirkus.com after determining that while we believe our reviewer's opinion is worthy and valid, some of the wording fell short of meeting our standards for clarity and sensitivity. And we failed to make the thoughtful edits our readers deserve. The editors are evaluating the review and will make a determination about correction or retraction after careful consideration in collaboration with the reviewer, unquote. Those sentences we write at home in a communique from the Central Committee announcing the purge of Comrade X from the Politburo. This is language that's trying not to say what it means. It has something to hide, and it seems driven by fear. And like most frightened thought, it ends up in the arms of an absurdity. By Kirkus's own standard, the privileged white male, Claiborne Smith, who runs the organization, is the cultural outsider. Yet he forced the Muslim woman of color to correct her mistake. When the review was reposted, it no longer had a star. And it included a new sentence. It is problematic that Sadaf is seen only through the white protagonist's filter. Apparently, this language brought the review up to Kirkus's standards for clarity and sensitivity. I've told this story at length because it contains so much that we've come to accept as normal, a soft cultural separatism, tyranny of the majority on Twitter, self-censorship, and an attitude toward diversity that ends up embracing the essentialism that it started out rejecting. I realize that this makes me sound a little like a conservative. In my own mind, it makes me a liberal. Diverse America is reacting to Trump, and he's making it more extreme. He shrewdly sees it as his ally. It sounds more and more like the progressive echo of America first. This brings me to the fourth narrative of national identity, the one that prevailed in last year's election. America first is the most superficially nationalistic of the four. But its nationalism is shallow, static, pessimistic, and brittle. It's convinced that the country has lost its traditional identity because of contamination and weakness. The contamination of others, foreigners, Muslims. The weakness of elites who have no allegiance to the country because they've been globalized. They eat sushi and attend conferences in Dubai and vacation in Australia. The elites have betrayed the true patriots. This nationalism isn't based on the ideas in the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Emancipation Proclamation, but in the blood and soil of the heartland. That's where the real America is found, among the common people, the white Christian inhabitants of the towns and farms. Now, one thing to notice about the idea of America first is that it sounds kind of foreign. It actually sounds European. In July, Trump gave a speech before a rapturous crowd in Warsaw in which he named the enemies of Western civilization. They are radical Islamic terrorists and government bureaucrats. Trump declared, Americans, Poles, and the nations of Europe value individual freedom and sovereignty. We must work together to confront forces, whether they come from inside or out, from the south or the east, 
that threaten over time to undermine these values and to erase the bonds of culture, faith, and tradition that make us who we are. He led the Polish crowd in a chant of, we want God, which meant the Christian God. I picture Trump in a white uniform with a red sash and gold braiding. He sounds more like a fascist wannabe than like James Madison. Culture, faith, and tradition. Not self-government. Not democracy. His rhetoric isn't even in the conservative American grain. It's reactionary. This is the meaning of make America great again. Though the phrase invokes nostalgia for an imagined past, it has nothing to do with the past. It's a radical call to sweep away the established order. It even has something in common with its arch enemy, political Islamism, which is also obsessed with conspiracies, treacherous elites, purification, and an imaginary golden age. It's built on the myth of the people, the true folk, or better yet, the Volk, who do the work and fight the wars and are betrayed and forgotten by the decadent rulers in the imperial center. This narrative comes with an autocratic character and contempt for liberal values and democratic norms. It personalizes power. It routinizes corruption. It destabilizes the very idea of truth. It's the greatest threat to American democracy in our lifetime. I realize there are other ways to discuss the question of American identity today, but these are the narratives that strike me as the strongest. Most Americans, without thinking about it much, subscribe to one or another. One thing to notice is that all of them create winners and losers. In libertarian America, the winners are the makers and the losers are the takers, Mitt Romney's 47%. In cosmopolitan America, the winners are the meritocrats, and the losers are the poorly educated, so loved by Trump. In diverse America, groups fight for their claims against the claims of others, including the soon-to-be minority majority group. And in America first, it's the true people against the elites and aliens. Each narrative pits tribe against tribe. Each tribe imagines that the others are illegitimate and will somehow disappear by being defeated at the polls or overtaken by demography or walled off or just by dying off. None of them has much conviction in the values and institutions of American democracy. It's always fallen short of the ideal. What's new is a sense that the ideal itself might not be worth the effort. I would like to leave you with another narrative, but I don't have one. Not yet, anyway. If you do, please let me know. What I have is a bunch of worries and an aspiration. By now, you know about the worries. So here's the aspiration. Let's recognize that you can't avoid the struggle to define our identity. If you do, you'll abandon the field to the ugliest version available because people still feel attached to their country, just as they do to their family. So instead of wishing national identity away, we should define it in the most inclusive terms possible, terms that get as far away as we can from tribalism. The most inclusive category I know is that of citizen. But it can be a hollow category for Americans who are shut out because of who they are or where they live or how much they make. The first step is to remove those barriers 
and then again and again. A second is to restore civics to our children's education. I don't just mean how a bill becomes a law and what's in the Constitution, although it would be nice if more than a quarter of Americans could identify the three branches of government, and if more than half could name at least one of the rights in the First Amendment. I mean we should teach our children that democracy requires citizens. By all means, let's teach them the critique of American democracy, but let's also teach them the ideal so that they know what it is we're critiquing and in what way we've fallen short and why that matters. Being citizens sounds namby-pamby. It isn't. It's hard work, and it often feels like failure. I am not saying to tone it down, be more polite, pretend we can all agree, for in fact there are fundamental values at stake that Americans will never agree on. I'm saying that we should be more militant, not for my tribe or yours, but for our democracy itself. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Packer. I think I speak for the crowd when I say that was brilliant. So thank you. Thank you. You you alluded to this a bit in your talk, but um, over the course of the summer, uh, Todd Nahisi Coates took a shot at you fairly or unfairly in a pretty remarkable piece. So I'd just like you to speak, since your theme was largely on alienation, tribalism, how has your thinking shifted since you wrote The Unwinding on race? Mm. That's a great question, because um, although The Unwinding has its one of its three main characters, a black woman in Youngstown, it really isn't very much about race. And she didn't talk very much about race. She talked about jobs and about her community and about what had happened to Youngstown when the steel mills left and her own job went to Mexico, and it was more about class. And in a way, I wrote that book between 2009 and 2012, when class was, uh, for me, the overwhelming uh, class and inequality and the fate of Americans who were being crushed by the financial crisis and the Great Recession. That was the overwhelming concern. And then the book came out, and Black Lives Matter, and Ferguson, and Trayvon Martin, and other uh, calamities followed. And then Tanahazi wrote Between the World and Me in 2015, and the entire conversation had changed. So in some ways, the unwinding is, all books are product of their moment, and the unwinding is a product of a moment that, although it hasn't disappeared, it was in some ways overshadowed. And I would have to say, yeah, it's a bit of a blind spot in that book, because it's not the fundamental category in which people are living their lives. It wasn't the way they presented themselves to me, because in that book, they have the word. That book channels their language, their ideas, their narratives into stories. So it's it's not my own uh, control over it. It's their way of presenting themselves. But I think I missed something, um, or at least something came up that reminded me and everyone of something more fundamental, I think, than class in America, which is race. And that was Tanahazi's interpretation of the election. I think his interpretation was brilliant, rhetorically powerful. I wrote that in my response, but also too narrow and too simplistic. It oversimplified the election into one cause only, and that cause explained everything and was trans-historical and Uh, subsumed all individual choices and distinctions between working class and other into one thing. And I thought, first of all, intellectually, I think that's a mistake, but politically it's a mistake, too, because it makes makes Trump unbeatable. 
to be really simple about it. It, it means that Trump wins. Um, so he and I went back and forth in what some people thought was kind of a model of civil argument. And, um, you know, I hope we're still friends. Taking this diagnosis to Trump America, how, how do you adapt this or how do you feel the response is when you take this very clear-headed and, and quite objective um, diagnosis of the American situation to the very people that you are um, critiquing, who you've yeah. spoken to so much? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, it's not easy because we don't speak the same language in some ways. And once it's sort of in the realm of politics and media rather than of two individuals talking, it becomes saturated in cliches, sound bites, um, and hostile categories that you can't get past. Um, I like long, long conversations with people outside of the arena of public life so that I can get to know them and get past the soundbite that is always their first response. When you read about a small town in Indiana in the New York Times, the reporter doesn't have time to do more than talk to eight people for half an hour and you get the sound bites. And you never feel as if you've, I don't, that I've gotten beyond. I don't want to critique the Times too much because they also do longer and, and deeper work, but the pressure of a daily paper means you can't. And writing a book is a privilege and a luxury because I can. But at this point, um, when it comes to things like, is pedophilia disqualifying for a Senate candidate? Or um, do I trust Vladimir Putin more than the intelligence agencies? Or um, was Trump's inauguration crowd the largest in history? I mean, these are not, to me, uh, open to debate. And it's really difficult to run up against a fundamental disagreement that, in my view, is not even debatable. And that is kind of the point that I left you with where we are all part of the same place and yet we don't know how to talk to each other. I'd say one lesson for journalists coming out of the election was we need to get outside our own bubbles. We need to learn how to talk and listen to Americans who don't think like the people we know. And then we can really disagree vehemently not condescend to them, but at least learn, again, how to listen to them. That's all I can say, because it's a really difficult problem. We're two countries at this point. Yes, sir. When you talk about people who feel left behind and a government that does not respond to them, are they aware that one party is trying to offer them increased minimum wages and health care, and another party is trying to deny them both? And, I mean, that, that is such a good... The other day, I was riding in a shuttle van in Ohio with a guy who was mountainous and my age but looked 20 years older and had a long white beard, and I just knew this guy voted for Trump. So I said, you know, we're going to have half an hour in our lives together. Just tell me, what do you think of Trump? And he sort of liked the invitation and told me he'd voted for him um, and thought that the media was not fair to him. And I, and I said, well, what's your most important issue? And he said, health care. <laughs> and I said, well, do you think repealing... I said, do you have health insurance? He said, I, I've been working for this company for 15 years. They never gave me health insurance. I finally had to buy it on one of the exchanges 
but my deductibles are too high, blah, blah, blah. I said, do you think repealing it would help or hurt? He said, well, that's a complicated question. It depends on what they replace it with. And, you know, we, we could have gone down that road a long way, um, but I also sense that we wouldn't get very far because, as I said in the talk, policy is not what this is about. Somehow the tribes are immune to policy arguments. This is about identity. This is about who I am, who you are, what it means to be an American. And for him, what it means to be an American is to be a Trump supporter, regardless of his health care, regardless of the minimum wage. That's why when Hillary Clinton went down her list of things she's doing to help the working class, I was just, my heart was sinking because I was thinking, oh, these are such fine, slightly small bore. I wish they were more ambitious, but they're fine ideas. They won't matter. We're not, our politics right now is not settled on that ground. Maybe it once was, I don't know, but right now we're talking about tribal identity, and that to me is just a deadly thing. So your question is to the point. My answer is I don't think that gets through. It, it's, not, it's not where people live right now. Yes, sir. From the end of your talk and the emphasis on the word citizen, I guess that you were very concerned about vote suppression. Yeah. What's to be, what's to be done about that? Vote suppression as a, a threat to citizenship and what's to be done. I'd say uh, vote out <laughs> Republican state legislatures and governors. I mean, that's where it happens uh, at the state level. It's uh, the federal government now has a commission led by Mike Pence to investigate vote fraud, which is the handmaiden of vote suppression. Um, It doesn't seem to be getting all that far, but it's in the states that it happens. And um, what Democrats somehow missed out was that during the Obama years, they lost a thousand seats in Congress and the Senate in state houses and governorships, and they forgot about local politics, which is where citizenship probably should begin. So I would say if you are concerned about voter suppression, vote out Republican state legislatures. Yeah. Thank you very much. You... um a lot of ideas that I've been thinking about, and you kind of left it out there uh, suggesting for a new narrative, and I'm looking to become the medium, inspired. I consider myself a progressive, and I think maybe one of the avenues, just like you're doing on a personal level, is to connect with people in a language that they understand. In, in culture, faith, and tradition, these are hard things to break through. One of the things that I'm trying to do is to, like when I hear Tommy Lauren say that faith you know, and I see faith first, and then I say, you rail against social justice warriors. Wasn't Jesus a social justice warrior, Tommy? Like, pose questions like that, and also do it in a way like Matt Tybee. I've been reading Matt Tybee, McChesney, which uh, John Nichols introduced me to. Matt Tybee is funny. He's irreverent. He is talking to a language and these people that they understand. So, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. So the question is, would a good new narrative moving forward be to connect with people in a language that they understand and in an irreverent, progressive, aggressive, just like you said at, at the end, being more militant, does that mean 
um, just being more irreverent, like a Matt Tybee. Well, I have problems with Matt Tybee, um, mainly because of his book uh, from Russia that uh, is is disgustingly misogynistic, and he somehow launched a career on that basis and was only called out on it in the last few weeks. Um, on the other hand, he's a great wordsmith, and the image of the vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, jamming its blood funnel relentlessly into anything that smells like money is an unforgettable image. So... Uh, this gets to writing and what is good writing. Um, and I mentioned, I quoted that Kirkus passage at length because to me it was an example of very typical bad writing, which is trying to disguise what it really means. Um, people know when you're kind of hiding. People know when you're doing an end run or when you're condescending to them. And if you speak directly, I think people, there's a, an ability, I think, to respect an honest disagreement if it's honestly stated. And, but if it's both, if it's either phony or if it's vicious. And viciousness is, I don't think, does very much good either because it dehumanizes people and it gives them the feeling that um, you'll never be able to understand them. Yeah, that kind of language may be a starting point for a better politics. Using the crystal ball that you probably have under the podium there, if current trends continue, where do you think the country will be in 10 years? Great. This is the question I dread. Um, I am not a a prognosticator. Um, But I think we'll continue to be divided because it's profound. And it's not going to be resolved by some middle-of-the-road politician who can sort of speak to both sides. These are profound disagreements of values. I do think that when the weather shifts politically, and it happens in the most mysterious ways without our political scientists and journalists really understanding it, then a movement or a leader emerges who answers an already new and existing longing. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt did that. Ronald Reagan did that. I didn't like it, but he did that. Um, I thought Barack Obama was that leader in 2008. I thought the weather has shifted, and we're in a new era of progressivism. That turned out not to be true. We were in an era of deep and ugly division, and Obama's race... uh, intensified it. So somehow the weather will shift. I'm hoping it will shift in a direction where local you know, citizens and local governments start solving problems that have been festering for a long time and that the national government is incapable of solving because it's so balkanized and tribalized. And then that will spread. It happened once before in a rather similar era, the progressive age, When we had the robber baron class, we had immigration and concerns about immigration, and we had profound inequalities and corruption in government. And the progressive era started locally and all over the country and all these sort of out of of the way in diverse places, and no one saw it as a thing until it began to coalesce. I think Trump is going to accelerate this because he is such a threat to democracy that unless you're uh, just a blind partisan, you're going to start to think that we have to, to find a different way. He's crystallized things. You know, he's like a, an accelerant, an enzyme. Um, but I don't know 
how it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen. That would be my hope, though. Yes. Hi. <clears throat> Until about uh, two months ago, I was an American ambassador. Uh, like a lot of my colleagues, I left the State Department. Wow. Where were you? Can you say, or is it? I can. You... It was the Central African Republic. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh huh. Wow. And uh, obviously, a huge debate in the State Department and other places in the government is should I stay or should I go? Uh, and whether it's the military officers in the White House, uh, supposed to be the adults in the room, or ambassadors like myself, or other people in government, or just plain citizens, shall we, should we engage with this administration mm. and try and uh, mitigate some of its worst tendencies, or does it make more sense to leave? And you decided to leave? or I decided to yeah. leave, yeah. I can't say I blame you. Um, but... As you know better than I, the Foreign Service is bleeding. The State Department is a hollow shell right now. There's nobody home. Um, So our diplomacy, which was already on its heels, has been completely turned over to the Pentagon. And um, foreign countries, foreign... you, You probably heard this in CAR. I've certainly heard it from European ambassadors. They're just, what is going on? How long is this going to go on for? How do we wait it out? Can we just wait it out? Should we, you know, take out insurance? I asked one ambassador, you know, how is this going to permanently damage our relations with Europe, with NATO, with our allies? And he said, um, if it's one term, it might be remediable. But if it's two terms, it'll be permanent. Um, that America will cease to be seen as a partner for rules and rights, you know, and the global uh, post-war order that we helped to build, that we essentially built. And that makes me, that's what my current book project's about, but that makes me sad to think of that. Anyway, uh, I totally respect your decision. I can't imagine continuing to try to serve under a president who makes a mockery of everything you're doing. Thank you. When I uh, think of the possibilities of a narrative of citizenship, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is one of the bright spots you didn't mention, and that was the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, during uh, during the last election. It was a campaign that was characterized both by serious substance, the content, policy, but also by a certain kind of form that was non-vicious, non-recriminatory, except for the billionaire class. Um, And it seemed to me to contain a potential to capture and envelop many of the tribes that you talked about. I just wondered what you thought about that. It's a great point. I thought about a fifth narrative, which you could call the Sanders-Warren America narrative. Um, And there's an arbitrariness to the talk I gave. You could cut it a different way. I left it out, and that's my tribe, if I have a tribe. Uh, That's the closest I've got. I don't know that it's as strong a narrative for a large number of us. It, uh, It lit a fire for... A lot of young people, um, for people on the left, and for some of the working class that ended up voting for Trump, a small part of that, I'd I'd guess. But it's, um, 
it's an economic argument, and right now people seem motivated differently. Um, and that's, that's why I left it out. I could easily have included it, and I think if, if I have any you know, hope in a, if not a narrative, at least in policy answers, that's, that's where they are. I just wonder if it's ever going to get political traction. Thanks. Yeah, last question, I guess. You probably read some history. And in, 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 this, in this room, there's probably more than one person who uh, reads history. I, could you tell us what you find useful and interesting mm. in the history that you're reading? And what kind of history might mm. you imagine would be useful and interesting in the future? That's a great question. I love that question. <laughs> I mean, my favorites are pretty old-fashioned. The academic historians might think I'm a bit of a, of a dinosaur. Um, I love Richard Hofstadter, who may have been wrong in some ways about um, the reform movement of the early 20th century, but who writes so well and who is so uh, humane and wise that I just want to turn to his pages whenever I'm feeling kind of dismal about our politics. Um, when I was working on The Unwinding, I was reading a lot of fiction. Um, I was reading John Dos Passos, whose USA trilogy is a great inventive portrait of the first part of the 20th century and inspired some of the techniques I used in The Unwinding. Um, and is, again, it's about two, you know, the f- most famous line in all three volumes is, All right, we are two nations, which is the moment of the Sacquin Vanzetti execution. That's, I, that is the epitaph on our own era. All right, we are two nations. Um, and I was reading Edmund Wilson's journalism from the Depression, uh, the 30s, and the American Earthquake. These are kind of obscure books, but they remind you that, you know, there's always been a degree of hopelessness and of division, maybe deeper than now, I don't know, and of rage, violence even, but there's also been individuals who, I mean, the, the, word, you know, the, the words I used, I chose carefully about American democracy, those words have a kind of a charge that animated people, and I hope still animate people, they mean something. They have a, they have a value, and the value is to be found in our history which doesn't mean we look at it uncritically. We look at it very critically, but we look at it, and we look to it for the meaning of why we continue to think it matters to live in a democracy. That is not a guarantee. That could disappear. That's, if you came away from my talk with anything, that would be what I want to say. This could disappear. It has disappeared. You know, it has been taken more hits in the last year than I can count. So it... It needs us to, you know, to want it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.